If you're listening to this as it comes out, it is semi-officially Christmas season. It depends which day you're listening to it. I feel like the day after Thanksgiving, it's legal to consider it Christmas season. But generally, if you go back to last year, I do four Christmas holiday episodes in December. But this episode comes out on November 28th. So what do we do? We're in limbo. It's like those days between Christmas and New Year's where you're like, do people do things? No. So what do we do? First, we welcome you back to The Link Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Zago. If you're not coming back and this is your first time, it still feels like being welcomed back because it's like a, it's a place you feel like you've been before. Much like Christmas itself. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just give it to us again. Every week, every Monday. Christmas every Monday would be cool. Would it be worse? Is it because it's only once a year that it's great? I don't think so. I think it would just be great all the time. Summer Christmas? I actually would love to see a movie about what Santa does in the off-season. Like Santa on the beach, Santa goes on vacation. Does he wear normal clothes? Or does he have a summer getup that looks similar but is light? What is his bathing suit like? Does he let his belly hang out? Does he shave the beard? Does he want to go undercover? Or is he willing to sign autographs and take pictures with everyone, even in the south of France, in July? These are questions I need answered. But I don't think we can answer those today. And I was torn what to make of this episode. Should it be a Thanksgiving episode? That was delicious, but it's over now. I did see the Radio City Christmas Spectacular. I could have done an episode on that, which, by the way, is great. Brings the Christmas spirit. It's exactly what you think it's going to be. Rockettes do kicks. They wear outfits. They're singing. They're Santa. Although I got to say, I prefer my Santas to be extremely plump. And this guy, I mean, he had a a belly, I guess. But he was kind of a thin Santa. And he has to dance and sing and move around the whole entire show. He's basically the host of the show. He does it all. He brings the magic. I get it. How else are we going to get to the North Pole? But, I don't know, man. I still want that junk in the hood? I mean, he can have junk in the trunk, too. But it's the belly we're looking for. Was still great. Spoilers for the Christmas Spectacular. They did add these ice fairy drones that fly over your head at a certain point in the show. And I gotta say, creepy. They even warned you if one lands in your lap, just wait for the end of the show. And I'm like, well, I'm stealing the drone. I'm bringing home an ice fairy. What if it's magical? I'll deal with the creepiness for a little bit of magic in my life. But that's a good way to start a haunted movie, which is maybe the sequel to Santa's off-season escapades. We could churn out a lot of holiday movies. Speaking of which, I did at least want to nudge us in the Christmas season direction, and I did watch Spirited on Apple TV+. Will Ferrell, Ryan Reynolds, it's a Christmas movie, it's a reimagining of A Christmas Carol. I do recommend it, we'll get to that in a little bit, which will lead us down the road of how I'm looking at streaming services, and ultimately, Disney reintroducing Bob Iger as the CEO and making a big switch on a random Sunday, that was interesting. Just dropping that bomb of news, slipping it in before the week starts, because everyone will be distracted on Monday and forget about it. Guess what? We didn't forget. It means interesting things, and I gotta imagine that it relates to what they're doing with the streaming services and the money that they're making from them. But anyway, I did enjoy that movie. I expect evolutions in how these movies will be made and where they'll be put, theaters versus streaming. All of that is gonna change a little bit in 2023, probably, as we get a little more footing in what this should look like because 2020 and 2021 were covid seasons all right i can't get too far into this at the link underscore podcast twitter and instagram do the things follow the stuff write a review tell your friends tell your dog you can put a santa hat on your dog but if they don't like it take it off don't be the person that dresses up the pet when they hate it if they love it and embrace it great it's like me with an ugly sweater i like it i'm gonna wear it did i wear a sweater with santa on it sitting on a throne of candy canes like it's game of thrones 
And did I want people to come up to me at the Radio City Christmas Spectacular to compliment me on it? Yes. But you know, people were focused on average size Santa, and I get it. So before we talk about all that good stuff in this limbo thanks Christmas episode, we need the tunes. stars Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds. It is an Apple original film, which we'll get to in a minute, and it is on Apple TV+. Why do they call it Apple TV+, it's too many qualifiers. Apple is Apple, then you got TV, what's plus about it? Where do we go from here? Apple TV+, next gen 2, 2025. Don't love it. The movie though, I did really like. It seemed like something I was gonna watch, kick off the Christmas season, make for a good afternoon, the Christmas lights are on, and it would be fine. And when you look at IMDb, 6.6 makes sense, but Rotten Tomatoes, 81% audience score. And I gotta say, I would give this movie a solid 7.4. Maybe we're overdoing it, but it could earn it. I really had fun with it, and going into it, I didn't know it was a musical, but it is. So they did this funny thing where Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds and Octavia Spencer, who's great, by the way, are starring in a musical and doing the singing numbers and dancing numbers? And of course they were backups, and the production value was really high. All the choreography and set design, it was legit. There's no actual reason this movie wasn't released in theaters, aside from the fact that Apple wanted to slap their candy cane on the table and say, you're coming to us to watch this. Which is interesting, and you really do have to wonder how they made their money back, but we'll get to that. $75 million budget, by the way. And Apple TV Plus costs $7.99 per subscriber, but I'm getting ahead of it. I thought it was an interesting choice to do a comedy musical with non-singers. Because generally, I would say this movie is going to be rough. But I like Will Ferrell, I like Ryan Reynolds, I like Octavia Spencer. It's also hard to watch Ryan Reynolds in anything and not really like it. But going into it, I did feel like this is just another streaming service level movie. It's not really going to blow me away. It's something to have on in the background. And yet here I am, singing its praises. They weren't great singers, by the way, but they weren't as awful as I would expect them to be. Tracy Morgan was in it too, by the way, who I just feel the need to call out because he makes for some hilarious jokes. Even though he's kind of not in it, but you'll get what I mean when you see it. The most polarizing thing about this movie, though, was that it was very meta. They didn't directly break the fourth wall, which I'm sick of in a lot of things. The first one that comes to mind was She-Hulk. I was like, guys, stop. It was funny when we saw it for the first time 30 years ago. It's too much now. You're overdoing it. So they didn't break the fourth wall, but they made constant references to the fact that they were in a musical. And some of the characters would be like, please don't sing again. And in one of the scenes, it's not really a spoiler, it happens early, Will Ferrell starts to break into song and his boss shuts it down. And they don't go back to it. And it's like, oh, that's a good, that's a good gag. It's very, it's meta but it's done in a pretty good way and not too on the nose. They did have a bunch of on the nose ones and I'm up and down about them, but a lot of them made me laugh instead of make my eyes roll into the back of my head like some other things. I guess we come back to this pretty often on this podcast. It's like, just make it good and it'll work no matter the style. But if you're making a Christmas Carol remake again and you're putting it on a streaming service and not in theaters, you have to at least try 
You don't have to. A lot of people aren't trying. They're just putting out cookie cutter stuff. Like disenchanted. I mean, we've seen it 30,000 times. But if you try to do something with a little bit of a wrinkle, I'll at least think it's worth watching above all of the other content that's out there that I just can't find myself getting to. And everyone must feel this way. I liked Spirited a lot, and I was surprised by how much I liked it, because for every one Spirited, there are 50 movies that I don't even get to that are on all the streaming services, and then another five that I do get to, and I just say, yeah, that was a movie that I've seen. But this at least had some ambition towards being funny, and some originality in the musical aspect, but still took itself seriously enough to do big production numbers during the musical scenes. So all the background dancers and singers, it was still really good. They still break into song and the whole scene changes and then it goes back at the end. Like any other musical, they did it a real way. It just had a comedy spin to it. It's the same thing I loved about Book of Mormon on Broadway. They didn't ever disrespect the musical part. All the songs are very real, catchy, fun, so is the dancing. In fact, the production was so high that I questioned how they make money back on the budget. But that, to me, can work, even if it's rare. Those are the only two I'm thinking off the top of my head. And most of the time, when you see something like this, the obvious, bland, I don't even want to say vanilla, because vanilla is better than this, comedy choice would be to just poke so much fun at the musical that it's not actually a musical anymore. It's just a spoof on a musical. This wasn't a spoof. This was a real musical, just also comedy. And I feel like we went so far with the spoof movies. Scary Movie did it well, but then they devolved into 10,000 other ones. That that genre is so dead now that I'm glad this movie didn't make that kind of choice. And instead, taking it seriously and putting the big budget behind it, which is a different financial choice than a creative one, led to a pretty interesting creative piece. And there's been a ton of Charles Dickens remakes, I get that. Scrooged, Muppet Christmas Carol, Mickey's Christmas Carol with Scrooge McDuck. All three are really good. Bill Murray saw me play basketball once. That's neither here nor there. I made a three in front of him. It was really good. Crowd went wild. This one took it to a different place, even in the writing of it, where they definitely decided from the get-go, we're not just going to do another version of the same story. We are, but we're going to take some swings. And we're going to put these people in it that we know you're going to like. So you'll respect the swings because they won't fall flat because our talent can probably pull it off. And they have the added bonus of my expectations being fairly low, which I wonder how it impacts the volume of people who watch this film. But I do think for the people that do, if you go in with those low expectations, and maybe people don't, maybe people see Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds and think this better be great. I don't know. But I see an Apple TV Plus exclusive Christmas movie and I think this is probably not going to be awesome but I'm down to watch and then if it beats those expectations they end up looking better I wonder how that would go if this were in theaters would as many people see it would more people want to see it because they think it's legitimate you see a Christmas movie with a big cast maybe you're down to go it would surely make its money back faster but what would the audience reaction be if they went to see this in theaters what would my reaction be if I went to see it in theaters I think I still would have liked it but it really does help that I'm sitting at home with Christmas lights on, just entering the whole holiday season, don't have to go anywhere to do it. Easy peasy Christmas, I can't say Yeezys. Wheezy? Little Wayne Christmas album? I'd listen to that. Also, I'm surprised that Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell never did a movie together before this one. That's actually insane. They had great chemistry. They make such a natural duo. And even in just seeing it on a poster, you're like, yeah, that's going to be great. 
So maybe this could have floated in theaters. I, I think it would have been profitable. And again, it just makes me wonder this streaming service idea. What is it that they're trying to do? But if they're trying to put out a movie that I can enjoy, then they did a surprisingly good job. I'm not going to be that surprised if this movie just flies a little bit under the radar for now and people that saw it will be like, yeah, that was pretty good. And then in a couple of years, people go back to this movie and like it as a Christmas movie. That wouldn't shock me. In fact, Elf was kind of like that. I don't remember Elf being as popular then as it is now. Also, not to get into spoilers, but there were emotional parts of this movie too. It had a legitimate arc. In fact, it was a little bit messy in a storytelling narrative way because it had kind of two main characters that each had their own arc, which again, they're trying to do a lot of things. The comedy, the musical, figuring out how to write two characters that both are main characters, doing all the meta things without becoming so meta that you roll your eyes at it. That's a lot for a Christmas movie, which are generally pretty Christmas cookie cutter. I want to say that this could have been like a modern Christmas classic movie. Like, there aren't that many of those that come out and can fit the classic bill. But since it didn't have a real release in theaters, I, I do wonder how that's going to go. I don't think that many people will watch this movie all the way through and be disappointed in it. It might not win Oscars, but for what it's trying to be, it was really good. And I buried the lead here. But if you don't know who Pasek and Paul are, Benj Pasek and Justin Paul, an American songwriting duo and composing team for musical theater, films, television, they've done a lot of really good stuff. One of which is La La Land. Justin Hurwitz was the mastermind behind that whole thing, but Pasek and Paul won an Oscar for Best Original Song for City of Stars. And they had multiple songs on that soundtrack. They also did the Aladdin live-action remake with Will Smith. Are we allowed to talk about Will Smith yet? He has another movie coming out on Apple TV Plus X3. This team also did Dear Evan Hansen, which I didn't see, but a lot of people talk about, and Spirited. So big respect to them, and respect for the production crew and visionaries of this movie for wanting to make it a real musical and doing over-the-top choreography. Is the plot perfect? Is the screenwriting technique fantastic? I don't know. I don't really care that much for this film. It's not Citizen Kane. Do people watch Citizen Kane and think it's good? I feel like that's the reference for a perfect movie. It's not good, fellas. How about that? But it has a Christmas vibe. It has a good cast. If you don't get it by now, I want you to watch it. I want you to post at the link underscore podcast what you thought about it. I'm trying not to spoil it. I am a sucker for a good musical and I am a sucker for a holiday movie. And I really want to go out on a limb and just say that this is going to be a classic eventually. I don't know if that's a hot cocoa take, but the more I talk about it, the more I'm talking myself into it. And I came out of it liking it. I did look up some reviews, which I normally don't do, but this one I just hadn't heard a lot about. So I was curious how people felt. And a lot of people did like it. And I learned that Regal Cinemas does these events called mystery movies, where you just go to the theater and you don't know what you're going to see. And they ran this movie in their theater, so some people did get to watch it in theaters, and all of those reviews were fantastic. So I'm a little bit sad that we're not going to get that vibe from it, but when you look back at the best Christmas movies, do you really necessarily think of how you felt in the theater? It's not Top Gun. You just feel the Christmas vibe and the fun that comes with it. And I think this will age well. Definitely see it. It has heart. Good credit scene. Almost like a secret code word, but that's for the end. We're not there yet. It's a beautiful time to listen to the Christmas music in this ad. It sounds really fun. I'm glad I found it royalty free on YouTube. I thank you, whoever put it up. 
I could honestly just listen to the beautiful Christmas music that is the soundtrack to this ad, but I like the YouTube subscribers, and I know you guys like sports, and I know you guys like money. Especially around holiday season, everyone needs a couple extra shekels in the pocket, and we're giving it to you. Mike the Mush Sports, you can subscribe on YouTube, you can go to at Mike Mush Sports on Twitter and Instagram, we're posting gambling picks constantly, we're talking a lot of football stuff these days, football playoffs, not far away, we crushed the playoffs last year, in 2022 we're up over 100 units, that means if you bet $10 on every single pick that we offered in the videos on the YouTube, you'd be up to $1,000 by now, pretty good, you want last minute thoughts, reactions to the games? Twitter and Instagram are for you. I'm always reacting to all the different sports, lots of different things, but it's the cash. It's the cash that keeps you coming back. I'll wrap up the picks for you. I'll put a bow on it if you want. Mike the Mush Sports. I promise to have Christmas lights on in the background. So I mentioned the $75 million budget that Spirited had, and Apple TV Plus not only isn't very expensive, they generally do have less collective content than the other streaming services which in turn means they're more reliant on each of these originals to bring in some eyeballs and keep this division of the company afloat. But I have a few questions about that. One, do they expect Apple TV Plus by itself to be profitable? Or are they actually just trying to get as close to a break-even point as they can to have a footing in the streaming game since their company is such a giant, bigger than Disney, bigger than Amazon, Apple runs shit. They have a multi-trillion dollar market cap, so maybe they understand that they're going to lose money, at least in the short term, with the hopes that maybe just getting eyeballs on the platform and the platform existing means they can have an acquisition down the road. Maybe they buy Netflix or something like that happens for the content and run everything through their own service and then worry about being profitable later. I don't even know if that's possible, but we saw stuff happen like this with HBO, right? So while you are losing money creating some of this content, maybe you do have your eyes set on a different goal. Also, since they're not particularly worried about someone coming up and stealing their market share with selling iPhones, I think they can afford to take these kinds of swings. And if putting Spirited on their service at a... I mean, it's got to be a massive loss, right? I just don't know how they calculate it. Like, not all of your subscriptions are being made because Spirited came out, but they could at least take a percentage of the subscriptions in December and January and attribute it to that, new subscriptions anyway. And then how do you define who the people would have been that were going to cancel but kept it to watch Spirited? It's just hard for me to attribute it to any one individual piece of content, even if it's a big one, which this, I don't know if it will be. So how do they know how much money they made back? Or do they just look at the overall yearly budget of all of the films that they had? They set it at the beginning of the year, they reach it by the end of the year, and then they look at the profitability of the platform and decide that way? But then how do you know what worked and what didn't? I guess just viewing numbers overall relative to your overall viewership? It's tricky. What drives subscriptions and what is worth it for a budget of $75 million at $8 a subscription? You need over 9 million subscriptions to get your money back. And the internet estimates that somewhere between 25 and 50 million, I understand that's a really wide gap, but nobody really knows, subscribers exist on Apple TV Plus in the first place. If you think this movie, Spirited, no matter how good I think it is, is driving... 9 million more subscribers, it's not. 
This is also a streaming service that has like five, six, seven percent of the market share of streaming services in general. Which makes me wonder what is the goal for Apple here? And what is really the goal for any of these services? Although Apple especially, since they are such a minor player in this and have such a major backing with their regular company, what are they trying to do? Because they are paying $20 million each, supposedly, to Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds for this movie. Do they really just want to pay them $20 million each to be in a big Apple commercial? And not directly, they didn't, they did product placement gags in the movie, but they didn't do one for Apple itself. I just mean the whole movie itself is just to exist to serve the Apple brand being out there. It's like Apple ponied up for Coda, right? Now that had a $10 million budget and isn't the same, but they still had to haggle over it with all the other streaming services on who was going to get it, and it ended up winning the Academy Award. Did Apple TV Plus make $10 million on Coda? Probably not. They didn't have as many subscriptions as they have now back when that came out. But it bumped their market share up a little bit. It allowed them to increase their budget to shell out $75 million for this movie and other projects. And I guess they figure that if they can keep doing that and keep making those little jumps, eventually their market share will be big enough where they can do something else with it. Go acquire live sports and put it on there. Sign big collaboration deals with other big companies, whether you're sharing content or buying them outright. You're keeping a foothold in the streaming game, assuming the streaming game will remain large and you remain maneuverable despite taking year-to-year -year losses. You at least have the options to do things, and then if it really doesn't work, I guess you just shut it down? I mean, they've lost at least a couple of billion since launching. They had to have. Some people think they're spending five, six billion a year on the platform. They're never going to make that back in just subscriptions. Not now, and not with this kind of market share, but they must know this. So what are they trying to do? At least they have the quality over quantity equation figured out pretty well. Other services definitely do not, although it's just a different strategy. They also have the added bonus of it basically just being a marketing arm for their super profitable iPhone business because I think anyone who buys an iPhone or an iPad or a MacBook, I think they get the service for free, at least for some time. And I know they're doing family sharing, and so they're trying to just like think of Apple TV Plus as one giant commercial for Apple. And it starts to make a little bit more sense when you factor in that they can maneuver down the road. And they're just waiting everybody out. These streaming services have to start cannibalizing each other sometime soon. You can't keep operating at a massive, massive loss like some of them are unless you have the backing of an Apple or an Amazon. They can do it. Now, I don't know if they're all losing money, but it seems like streaming services in general are bleeding money until they kind of figure out how to make this thing profitable because they're throwing so much money at the acquiring of these kind of pictures or shows or content in general. Disney's the same thing. They can do it too. Apple, Amazon, Disney... Different from Netflix, Hulu, HBO. Well, actually, Disney owns Hulu now. So it's kind of a perfect example of this cannibalization already happening, but them not even understanding what they need to do yet to get to the end of the road. But one thing is clear. Some of these companies, more than others, have backup businesses. They're not worried about going insolvent. That's never going to happen. They just write off the losses from this arm of the company, and then Disney can thank Magic Kingdom for making it profitable regardless. Netflix doesn't have that. So if they operate at a loss, they have to hope that the stock price is worth it. And as this market share gets harder and harder to figure out and more and more competitive, I have to imagine the ones with a huge bankroll and less risk, 
might just eat the other ones. And that's not even a bad thing for a Netflix. And by the way, Netflix could be the one to buy somebody else. Who knows what order it's going to go in. But it feels like a scary play because if your market share just goes down and your stock price goes down, which everybody's is, what is your company worth anymore? And can you continue to spend the kind of money that you've been spending on the content to keep yourself afloat, to keep yourself at the top of the leaderboard when you're not sure that a payoff will come at the end of it? So that's a big way of looking at it. And spirited is a small way of looking at it, but it's all the same. How do we make the money back at the end? And is this all worth it? Which brings us to the fact that Disney is apparently going to undergo some changes here. Bob Iger, former CEO, was renamed CEO. And no stranger to people buying each other's companies, he was the president of ABC television from 94 to 95. Disney bought ABC in 96. Iger was named president of Disney in 2000 and succeeded Michael Eisner as CEO in 2005, stayed until 2020, retired, and is now back two years later taking over for Bob Chapik. Now, Bob Chapik was the chairman of Disney Parks, Experiences, and Products before becoming the CEO taking over for Iger. So he's taking a lot of heat now for being this guy that is greedy and just wants subscriber numbers and money and is churning out content just to profitize everything. People hate the Genie Plus product that exists in the parks now where you can schedule a couple of rides in advance, but there are a lot of downsides to it. They got rid of fast passes. They made a lot of changes. So the things that happened under JPEG, people didn't really like, and they attributed it to some level of greed and money hungriness over quality. And yet, Chapik was named CEO in the first place because he ran one of the most profitable arms of the Disney company. So I'm not sure exactly what we expected him to do. And I do understand why people are excited that Iger is back, because under Iger, they acquired huge companies. In 2009, he bought Marvel, he bought Lucasfilms, they bought Fox, they bought Pixar. Disney became a mega giant under Iger, for sure. But... What exactly was he doing differently than Chapek just was, aside from the quality being higher, for each individual thing that came out under their rule? But I don't think Bob Iger had a whole lot to do with what Infinity War turned out to be, aside from the fact that he acquired Marvel in the first place. And he should get the credit for doing that, but I'm sure if Chapek had the opportunity to buy Netflix and had full board approval to do so, he might have. And people might look at that like a win when Stranger Things seasons come out and you go, yeah, that is really cool that that's on Disney now. But you see it happen all the time. It's like a mediocre coach in football and his team wins the Super Bowl and then all of a sudden you think he's an unbelievable coach. Maybe he, that does make him a great coach. Or maybe he was in a good circumstance and pulled the trigger on some things that other people didn't have the opportunity to do when they were sitting in the seat. I am excited Iger is back. I just always feel the need to be skeptical about what we think we know about a CEO of a company or a coach of a team or anyone that you actually don't know in real life or don't have strict facts and financials about. Even the financials, you can praise them for being profitable, but you have to take context into consideration. Of course, they're going to be profitable when they acquire huge companies and immediately turn out content that is new with those companies. Of course, they're not going to be as profitable when it's a raging pandemic across the globe. So Chapek gets criticized a little bit for quality taking a dip when overall money coming in was always going to take a dip during this time. He had probably the hardest era to figure out in Disney's run during 2020 through 2022 when they're dealing with, well, can we open our parks back up? How? What do we have to do? How do we have to change this? Oh, by the way, we're launching a huge streaming service now. 
We've never done this before. I hope it goes really well. And how do we change our strategy in how to attack remaining profitable while having these new things that we're dealing with? And I don't think Chapik did a good job because the content that came out under him recently just felt very cookie cutter. It felt forced and it felt very much like quantity over quality. But I don't necessarily know if that means Iger is going to step through the door and all of a sudden slash all these projects that were supposed to happen and start going back to way less content coming out and only putting theatrical releases for big movies and the occasional Disney Plus exclusive. I don't know if that's really going to happen. It would be kind of cool if it did, but people would also be mad that they're not going to get all of their Star Wars shows and Marvel shows that they were getting before. Everyone wants to criticize them when they come out because they're not as good as some of the movies they've set themselves up to have the expectations for, but then if they go away, I think people might end up missing it. And so how does Iger navigate that? And how does he find a way to not get criticized by the other side for whichever decision he makes? And does he even make the decision alone? So I'm definitely intrigued to see how they're going to do this, because if you want him to revert all the things that they did before, well, they didn't have Disney Plus before. So you can't exactly just go back to the way things used to be, unless you're down to just take a big loss on Disney Plus potentially, or an even bigger loss than they already are, to have the long view in mind, like we said with Apple TV. But with the sheer amount of content Disney has set itself up for here, you're also running the risk of upsetting people when you take it away potentially. So how do you land that plane on such a narrow runway and lava on both sides? I don't necessarily know, I just want to temper my expectations for what's about to happen. I don't necessarily think Iger walking through the door makes every Marvel movie that comes out better again. Does it mean that he has other big acquisitions in mind and is coming in to do what he did before? Maybe, but doesn't that mean even more content? And don't we kind of attribute the problem right now being that there is so much content in the grand landscape that we want someone to make less? But Disney's a huge culprit of that. Now, if they can really up the quality of each individual thing that comes out by getting rid of some of the projects, then great. Your reputation will be better. I don't know how it'll affect your bottom line, and that is what they're going for. It would be really fascinating if he came in and sold some properties, did the reverse of what he did before, because I don't think that would be popular from a PR perspective, but it might make your bottom line a little easier to handle when you don't have to take losses churning out all this content constantly. Let it be someone else's problem. I don't know. He must have something in mind. And maybe it doesn't even have to do with Disney Plus, because a lot of people attribute the Disney Plus launch to JPEG. And what's really funny about that to me, another reason why you can't really judge all of this when you don't know the whole truth, the idea for the Disney Plus streaming service had to have started a long time ago. It was launched in November 2019. Iger was the one that announced in 2017, August 2017, that Disney would pull all its movies and content from Netflix, and in 2019 would launch their own streaming services, which didn't even have a name yet. That was around the same time they purchased Fox, so that they could put all of that content onto this unnamed streaming service, which became Disney+. Plus. So you can saddle Chapek with the losses of Disney+, Plus, but you have to understand that he was just running parks and product, so it still counts. He was still involved, I'm sure. But the idea for all of this probably happened, I mean, I would imagine the spark started flying as early as 2014 or 15, fully under Iger's rule. So if you want to criticize what's been happening content-wise specifically in the last two years, you can do that, and Chapek deserves that, but all of those things were probably planned under Iger as well, 
And Chapek was saddled with a pandemic which flattened his financials. And made it harder to just make decisions in general in a changing landscape. So I like Bob Iger. I'm intrigued by it. I think there's a lot of moving parts here between the evolution of the streaming services in general, the evolution of parks in general coming out of the pandemic, the evolution of these big companies eating each other alive, and I hope people understand the mountain that is in front of Bob Iger as he retakes this, and the difficult job that Chapek had trying to build a positive reputation here in a very, very tough scenario where they were always going to be in the negative in certain aspects of their business. But I hope Marvel movies get dope again. Before I forget to do it, the secret code word is Felicia because it's almost time to say bye. But I do have a recommendation to make before we wrap this episode up. And that is buying into Christmas season. I like the Grinch, but don't be one. He already exists. Christmas season's magical. And there's a reason we did multiple Christmas episodes last year which I highly recommend you go back to, and we're going to have a couple more coming soon. My absolute favorite episode of the podcast ever, hands down. Episode 44 with none other than Santa Claus. I couldn't believe he said yes. I honestly couldn't. He carved out some time for a Zoom call. Didn't have him in person, but it's understandable. Busy guy, especially this time of year. But he really answered every question I had, was very open about the process, very jolly. Told me I was on the nice list, felt really good about that. Ended up being a great Christmas after that, wasn't surprised. Once you talk to the big guy, it all changes. I highly recommend you go back to that episode, kick yourself into Christmas time. We will have some more Christmas episodes coming. Then as the new year rounds out, I always do my top fives of the year. Movies, shows, albums, books, podcasts, that'll wrap up the year. Then we're almost at 100 eps. We're moving along here. And while we're doing it, we're just simply having a wonderful Christmas time. So get a tree, decorate it, real fake. We'll probably have a debate on one of these episodes. And we'll see you then. Merry, jolly, all the things.